Good morning, everyone. I'm excited about today's message because this is the official kickoff for 40 Days in the Word. And so we're going to be covering just a ton, a ton of information. So I want you to get out your, if it's your smartphone, great. If it's some note taking, uh, I've got a lot of scripture that we're going to go through here. So so if you have a pen, you have a little... uh, thing to take notes with. The worship guide has some notes on the back there that you can use, and I would love to do this. So, love you to do this. So, um, all right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you that they are our rock. They're the thing we build our lives on. So, Lord, would you illuminate the scriptures to us today, all the questions, all the concerns, all the issues that we might have, or just, or just in a way today that you would help us to be able to tell others why we believe the Bible. Give us your grace for that today, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to talk to you today about, uh, on this question, why can I trust the Bible? Why can I trust the Bible? It's such, a, such an incredible work, the Bible is. It is the most translated, most read, and best-selling book in history. It is all over the globe. The Bible is an incredible set of ideas. It is the record of God's interaction with humanity. It is this, it is this uh, incredible book that is alive, that is powerful, that is sharp. It does something to our souls when we read it. It's really an incredible, incredible book. But there are questions that people have about it. There are concerns that people have about it. And I can tell you to trust the Bible And you can do it out of obedience, but it's really good for us to discuss why. What are the reasons you can trust this book? Beyond just doctrinally or theologically or even relationally with God, certainly those are valid reasons, but they sometimes don't go over the cultural wall of the people who have questions about this book in their mind. And I want to talk about those questions today. If you, if you look at the scripture, and you can just begin to write these scriptures down, because we're going to go at a, at a quick pace. Can you follow with me today? Because it's a lot of material today. As the kickoff, I want to get a lot of material into you, all right? Are you ready? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Here's what it says. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. So that the man of God may be thoroughly, everybody say thoroughly. That means you get it all. You get all the tools, you get everything you need to be equipped for every good work that God has in mind and planned for you. The thing, the part I want to focus on today is the first phrase, all scripture is God breathed. The original word is theonustos. Theo means God. Neustos means breathed. God breathed his words into the lives of the writers. And then they wrote down what he wanted to say. That's what this passage says. Now, if you hear me speaking, what you hear is words that are Ross breathed. (laughs) Uh, the, The air is coming up out of me and through my vocal cords. It's making a sound and you're hearing those words. The problem with my words is, my wife reminds me often, they are flawed. (laughs) They are flawed. But when we look at God's word, what we need to 
Trust is that God's word is flawless. God's word is true and it is useful. Look at Psalm 119, 86. Here's what it says. It says, all your commands can be trusted. All your commands can be trusted. Now, it's one thing for us to say it and one thing for me to try to convince you of it. You might try to convince a person that you know at work or at school or a family member to believe the Bible. It's one thing for you to say, well, the Bible's believable. It's really, it's, you need to trust in it. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to kind of talk about the reasons why. And I want to deal with today the reasons why we can trust the Bible, because it's a valid question. This is not a bad question to ask. Can I really trust it? The world asks the question. Our public society, our culture is asking the question. Look at Time Magazine did two different covers over the years on this very question. Is the Bible trustworthy? Is the Bible fact or fiction? How true is the Bible? Listen, the world is asking the question. We need to be able to answer it. So you might not be personally struggling with whether or not you can trust this, but this message is for you to be able to get some ideas. I just want you to think about these ideas. I'm not going to prove anything to you, but I'm going to offer you some facts, some ideas, some thoughts about how the Bible works, what it looks like, how accurate is it. What does it deal with? So here's, I'm going to give you seven points, all right? Whew, seven, that's a lot, all right? Number one, I can trust the Bible because it is historically accurate. It deals with real people, real places, real time. It is historically accurate. It is not just doctrinally, not just theologically correct. Why is it historically accurate? Well, Hebrews 6, verse 18, you know what it says? It says, it is impossible for God to lie. People ask me sometimes, is, it, is, it, can, is there something that it's impossible for God to do? And I say, yeah, he cannot lie. The Bible says he can't lie. He cannot be unfaithful. It is his essence. It is who he is in his nature. And what I think is important to understand about this word is to embrace it at this level in terms of its... what. What's so true about it? I mean, can you imagine if the, laws, if the law of gravity were only applicable on Tuesdays and Thursdays? <laughs> Sometimes we treat the Bible like this. Well, so, you know, it's applicable for some things and then not for others, and I don't know. It's re- Listen, it's historically accurate, and people for some years have tried to debunk this and tried to say that it is not historically accurate, but I'm going to show you some ways that it is historically accurate. Psalm 33 verse 4 says, the word of the Lord is righteous and true. It's right and true. So how do you figure out if it's historically accurate? Well, you ask the same good questions that all historians ask. What would a historian ask? You would ask if there were eyewitnesses. You would ask what the material is based on. You would ask if it has credibility in the way that we deal with history. And what I can tell you about the Bible is the, 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 all the books of the Bible, the primary elements of the Bible, they're all eyewitness accounts. The Bible is primarily eyewitness accounts of what happened. When you look at Moses... Moses was there at the Red Sea when it parted, when it stood up like jello. <laughs> and they walked through, the Bible says, on dry ground. I know there's professors that have said, it's not the Red Sea, it's the Reed Sea. And so it was really shallow and they could just kind of walk through. Well, then the question, 
Then the question is, how did all of those soldiers of Pharaoh's army drown? It's a miracle one way or the other. <laughs> Joshua was there when the walls fell at Jericho, when they walked around that city. The disciples were there when Lazarus walked out of that tomb. They saw him in his, in his grave garments, and he came out alive. They saw it. Peter talked to Mark about it, and Mark wrote his book, The Gospel According to Mark. You took a look at the Dr. Luke. He wrote the book of Acts and the, and the Gospel of Luke, and he did all this research. He interviewed all eyewitnesses from all over the place and began to write what happened. Some people say, might say that, well, I think maybe they were correct when they first were written, but then it got exaggerated through the years, and, you know, as it was copied, there was different things that happened. Well, let me tell you that that just can't be true, because the scripture has been copied over centuries and centuries with immense and extreme care. I want you to understand that the scribes who copied the Pentateuch the Pentateuch, good word to know and say. Pentateuch is the five first books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And what we see is the scribes who began to write and the scribes who wrote the prophets, they had this precision with which they would write the words down to the letter. What they did was they counted every book's letters. Here's how they made sure there was accuracy. You know how when you're like texting somebody and the phone auto-corrects <laughs> and then you say something you really didn't want to say? <laughs> okay, these scribes did not want that to happen, so they would count not just the words, but the letters. And, if, and they, would, they would count the letters, and if it didn't have the exact amount of letters as the version before it, they would throw it away. They counted so accurately that they would go to the middle of the book and they knew what the middle letter was, the middle letter of the book, and they would count to make sure that halfway through it was the same letter in each version. It's an incredible thing how careful they were. Attention to detail, protecting. I've been to the place where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written about 100 years before Jesus, all right? The, the best material we had before the Dead Sea Scrolls was ab about um, 900 years after Christ, all right? And so now we've got a 1,000 years in here where we can sort of test how good were the scribes when they copied it, when you compare the Dead Sea Scrolls and what we already had, and there was about a 5% margin of error, 5%, and most of that, the majority of that 5% was just a spelling error, in the name or the word. It didn't change the meaning of it. You've got to understand that this is how the Bible was cared for. There were people who gave their lives to make sure the Bible was protected over centuries and centuries. And then, of course, we have archaeology. We have archaeology confirming the Bible over and over again. You have uh, Paul at Mars Hill. Right? I've been to Mars. I stood on Mars Hill. It's an incredible uh, place to be and just to think about Paul 
talking about the philosophies of the world and sharing Christ. I've been to the theater in, in Ephesus. Ephesus, it's in Turkey. And I've been to the theater from Acts 19, and I, I, I've actually led a worship service in that theater. All those ruins and those columns, and they're standing up there and standing on that floor, and people sitting all up in the, in the stands. And I've, I've led a worship service there, and that's where they had the riot, and, and, and some of the disciples almost got killed. Archaeology tends to reveal what the Bible has already said. The deeper they go, the more they discover right? Because you understand archaeology is about digging down through the, the layers of centuries. And when they get down to the layer, they discover the Bible is true eventually. Pool of Siloam, Herod's Temple, all of them. I've seen them. They're there. If you think about the book of Acts, the book of Acts is one of the most historically accurate books. As Dr. Luke wrote that, he names 54 cities, 39 countries. He names nine different islands, all of them histo with historical accuracy. It's not, the Bible is not a fable. It's not a group of legends that's sort of morphed over time. And these three ideas are something every person has to know and consider when they think about the trustworthiness of this Bible, this book. There's a couple of stories like uh, Solomon's they used to, there used to be a group of people that really questioned whether Solomon was a real figure or not, or whether it was just written about. And um, they were sure in those days there were no horses, right? There were only camels. They didn't even think horses were existing, existed during that time. But the Bible talks about all of Solomon's chariots and horses. And so they dig down into Megiddo, some archaeologists found one of Solomon's chariot cities, and guess what they found? Thousands of stalls for horses. Another example would be the Hittite Empire. Have you ever heard of the Hittites? Right? The Hittites, everybody thought it was a mythical thing, or they didn't believe that it even existed. But the Bible mentions it. It's not mentioned anywhere else until then the early 1900s. A, a guy named, a professor named Hugo Winkler, he discovered 10,000 clay tablets at the capital of the Hittites, all about their culture, all about their society. Now everybody believes in the Hittites. You can go on Wikipedia and they believe in the Hittites. <laughs> the Bible said it long before Wikipedia ever had it. It's important for us to embrace this idea and not just to dismiss it. People have this barrier to the scripture, and you can tell them with confidence, this thing has been protected. This thing is true. Number two, it is scientifically accurate. Scientifically accurate. Ooh. Some of you are like, what? What? The Bible's science? Now look, the Bible wasn't given to be a science textbook. That's not what it's about. It doesn't use scientific language, but it never gives bad science. It never offers bad science. And you understand science is using all of our senses to discover what is and what is not. There's a lot of bad science in this world, but it doesn't come from the Bible. So you, there are things in the Bible that are true that we've just discovered 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 300 years ago, but the Bible never gives quack science. <laughs> quack science, I love that. Jay Kepler, do you know who that is? Jay Kepler, famous astronomer. He says, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. 
Why does he say that? Because God establishes the laws of science and then we discover them. He establishes the rules of creation and then we spend our lives and we spend the ages discovering what's true. I'm going to show you some some elements in the scripture. The reason the Bible's accurate is, is scientifically accurate is because the laws of the universe are God's laws. Psalm 148, verse 5, look what it says. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord. For he issued his command and they came into being. He established them forever and forever. His orders will never be revoked. Did you know that science constantly changes? The Bible's the thing that doesn't change, but science changes all the time. When was the last time you heard somebody, you read an article or heard something on the news about something that used to be good for you, now is bad for you? (laughs) Something something that was bad for you, now good for you. You, it, It changes all the time. It changes in medicine. It changes in all kinds of areas of science as they discover new ideas. Did you know that in Paris, the Louvre, right? The Louvre Library, there are three and a half miles, three and a half miles of old science books. There's nothing more outdated than an old science book. Think about the science book you used when you were in third grade. (laughs) Nobody wants it anymore. Garage sales are full of them. You you ever go to a garage sale? There they are. Oh, I, I used that book in third grade. Nobody wants to buy it anymore. It's worth a penny. Why? Because science changes. There's nothing, nothing more inaccurate than a computer book that's 10 years old. <laughs> Three and a half miles of old science books, and almost all of them are obsolete. Almost all of them are obsolete because science changes. It's just a fact. In 1861, look at this fact. This is fun. 1861, there was a, the French Academy of Science, all right? They came out with a little pamphlet. And the pamphlet was about 51 incontrovertible scientific facts that prove the Bible wrong, right? 51 incontrovertible facts, scientific facts that prove the Bible wrong. Today, all 51 are wrong, They've been proven wrong by what? By God? No, by science itself. They've been proven wrong by science itself. And so one clue that we can look at, and again, there's no way I can prove to you the trustworthiness of the Bible because what has to happen is you have to consider these ideas, and it is a leap of faith. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through these pages. That's how it works. But you've got to open your heart up. You've got to open your mind up to believe the trustworthiness of this book. One clue about this book that it is true, that it's not man-made, is what the Bible doesn't say. It's what was not included in the Bible that was included in all of the resources at the time it was written. I want you to consider this. You'd expect the Bible to promote the science of its day when it was written, but it doesn't. Look at this. Can you go with me? Check these ideas out, all right? Here's for thousands of years, everybody believed these things. Number one, the earth was flat. Right? Remember, you all know about this. You learned about this in grade school. It wasn't until Copernicus, Galileo, and Columbus that we realized the earth is not flat. But 2,600 years ago, here's what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. (laughs) There it is right there. (laughs) 
But people didn't believe the Bible. They thought on their own. They believed in what they knew. It's an incredible idea, the earth being flat. We all know the earth is not flat now, and here it is in the Word so many years ago. Number two, the earth has, has to be held up. People have believed for centuries that the earth was held up by something. Just an example, the Greeks believed a giant named Atlas was holding the, the world up, right? Okay, the Bible does not mention Atlas anywhere in it. <laughs> but interestingly enough, the Bible, the New, most of the New Testament was written in Greek. The ideas of the day about Atlas are not in here. There's something else. If you think about the Hindus for centuries and centuries, the Hindus believed that giant elephants held up the earth on their backs. <laughs> and when there was an earthquake, it was the elephants moving. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm serious. You can't make this stuff up. What were the elephants standing on? <laughs> okay, it's, it gets deeper because the elephants, they believe, were standing on a giant turtle with a giant sea serpent swimming in the sea. That's, that's, what, that's what they believed. The Bible doesn't have any of that. The Egyptians, let's look at them. The Egyptians, incredible people, so intelligent, so intellectual, brilliant architects and astronomers. Moses was schooled in the arts of the Egyptians. Moses knew, he learned, he grew up in Egyptian culture, he learned everything in the house of Pharaoh, and yet it is not here in the Bible. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? One of the oldest Bibles, or sorry, one of the oldest books in all of history, not just the oldest book in the Bible, but the oldest writings in existence, some people believe, is the book of Job. The book of Job. Here's what it says. Here's what Job said. God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. I know some people are like, oh, that, he was just being poetic. Well, actually, he was writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit the truth here it was, it hangs on nothing. It was there for everybody to see, but they said, wait, that can't be true. I know what's true. I'm the ultimate judge of what's true. This mind is so brilliant. I know what's true and what's not true. It's sheer nonsense when people say that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate. Actually, the Bible continues to reveal what science thought was right, but now that science is revealed to be wrong, the Bible keeps demonstrating it. It's so interesting. Have you noticed? The deeper we can look into the womb, we're creating the, the, the technology to create that 3D and 4D image into the womb. Guess what happens as we see it earlier and earlier? Guess what happens? Abortion goes down, down, down in our culture. Science is proving that life begins at conception, not the Bible. The Bible teaches it. The Bible is true, but science itself is discovering that the Bible can be believed. It's an incredible idea. The number of stars 
could be counted. That was, a, that was a popular belief. The number of stars could be counted. 150 BC, all right, a guy named Hipparchus, he announced that 1,022 stars are in the universe. <laughs> all of you have read stuff about how the stars are infinite. But here it is, Hipparchus. Now, 300 years later, all right, 150 BC, a guy shows up named Paul, uh, Ptolemy. And Ptolemy concluded Hipparchus was a joker. He didn't, couldn't even count. There's actually 1,026. He found four more. 300 years later, he found four more. They found planets last year. They're finding planets last year. Look, 2,600 years ago, Jeremiah 33, 22, look what it says. The number of stars are infinite. There it is. There it is. The number of stars are infinite. One of the things that was taught for many, many years is too much blood made you sick, which led to the idea of bloodletting. Have you ever heard of this? Bloodletting is when you, when you, when you cut somebody open and they bleed so that they can get whatever's in them, out of them. That was the prevailing thought. It was, it was based on Hippocrates for about 2,000 years, and he taught that there were four body fluids, yellow bile, black bile, red blood, and blue phlegm. <laughs> you won't find any of those in the Bible. You won't find any of those in the Bible. But, but, the, but today we know that the blood is the source of life. You give people blood to make them well. They're called transfusions. And so you give blood to people. You don't take it away. Did you know that, look at, I'll just read you this. Leviticus 17, the life of every creature is in its blood. The life of every creature is in its blood. Did you know that George Washington was actually, he actually died from bloodletting. He got sick when he was older, and they, and, they, and they tried to fix him by making him bleed. And then he still didn't get better, so they did it a second time. And he still didn't get better. They did it one more time where they bled him out, and he died from a lack of blood. That wasn't that long ago, people. That was less than 300 years ago. Here we are. The Bible says it centuries ago. The life is in the blood. One of the things that people didn't understand was the need for quarantine. The need for separating sick people from well people. In, the, in uh, Europe, 25% of people died from the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages. Think about this. 25% of people died in the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages. They didn't know the value of quarantining the sick. They didn't understand contagion or infection. They, 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 they just kind of lived together and they shared. They didn't understand germs. They didn't understand what was going on. But if you were reading your one-year Bible this week... Did you notice it? It's all about training the Israelites how to separate people who are sick, make them go outside the camp for seven days, and then, and then inspect them. And if they're better, they can come back in. But if they're still not better, another seven days where they can't come inside the camp. They can't be with other people. They would be quarantined. God knew about germs. We didn't. He was trying to tell us, and we didn't understand. Obeying this book is so helpful for you and for me. But we've got to settle it, that we can trust it. I know people get hung up here on evolution, and they get hung up on this whole idea. Look, I, I think the problem is evolution as a natural selection theory that pervades, it becomes philosophy. Do you, know, you, you do understand evolution is still a theory, right? 
I believe in adaptation. God made the world. It adapts to its surroundings. There's adaptation all through history. That's not a big deal. But I don't believe it as an overarching theory about life and about how we live our lives. That doesn't make any sense. Adaptation is scientific. You can inspect it. Evolution's a theory. That they want to explain lots of stuff that they can't see or experience. Look at what Leviticus 13.4 says on this subject of quarantine. It says, put an infected person in quarantine for seven days. Right? That's what I was talking about. Leviticus 13.4. And it's all through Leviticus. It's exciting reading every day on how to deal with people who have sores. And if it's yellow, if it's red, if it's scabbed, if it's, you know, it's, it's crazy reading. But it, what it was was God trying to instruct his people to do what was, hey, he was trying to instruct them to do what was good for them. Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay and purified seven times. Number three, now we're going to have to whip through this last four. Are you ready? Can you go with me? It is prophetically accurate. Prophetically accurate. The Bible has predicted thousands of events that have happened just as God said they would. And some are still to come. Over 300 predictions about the Messiah. 300 predictions about the Messiah that have come to pass. Where he'd be born. When he'd be born. None of those are under his control, you know. You can't decide where you're going to be born. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> you can't decide what family you're going to be born in. Jesus submitted himself to the Father, and the Father had written over centuries in the prophets, here's where he's going to be born, here's how he's going to be born through a virgin, here's where he's going to live, he's going to come from this place, he's going to die on a cross, he's going to be crucified. The psalmist, Psalm 22, David speaks about Jesus dying a hideous, horrible death. Talks about crucifixion. How does he know what crucifixion even is? That was a Roman custom. It hadn't even come yet. Something incredible about these predictions being prophetically accurate. Second Peter verse 1 says, 121 says, No prophecy ever originated from humans. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction. Did you know that nobody wanted to be a prophet in olden Bible days? <laughs> Do you know why they didn't want to be a prophet? Because they killed him if they weren't right. <laughs> God says that the Holy Spirit spoke to humans under God's direction. Here, here's a word of advice for you. Don't ever go to a psychic who asks your name. <laughs> Matthew 26, 56 says, but this is all happening. This is Jesus. He says, this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scripture. He recognized it. He saw, he learned the Old Testament as he was growing up. He heard the stories of his mother. He knew that what was happening was happening to fulfill scripture. Revelation 22, six says, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. You can trust this. Number four, it is thematically unified. Well, what's the big deal about that? You might say. And I would say to you, 
one unified message over 1,600 years, 66 books, 40 different authors in over a dozen countries on three different continents in at least three different languages by people from all walks of life. That's the miracle. Think about it. Think about how awesome it is that God would write the story of redemption, that there would be a unified theme. Jesus is the centerpiece, that he would write this story over 1,600 years from all walks of life because there were farmers, there were kings, soldiers, shepherds, princes, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, scholars, businessmen, medical people. They all wrote from their perspective, and they were writing about the same story. Hey, here's the, here's the thing for you. Sometimes the most obvious answer is the right answer. <laughs> Sometimes we can't imagine it, but God was writing through these people. He was writing his story. You couldn't get a more diverse group of people to show from every angle, every angle, every station in life, this story of redemption. It'd be one thing if one person had written it, right? Okay, so if you, if you look at um, the Quran, Muhammad wrote it, right? It can be thematically unified. You look at the, the Analects of Confucius, you, Confucius wrote that. If you look at the writings of Buddha, Buddha wrote it. <laughs> okay, that's easy. But over 1,600 years, all these authors, the odds of this kind of thing happening are crazy. Now, I, listen, I'm not trying to prove it to you. I'm just trying to offer you some information and some facts that will help you understand in your mind what your heart probably wants to believe. It would be like me giving out 50 pieces of colored paper to everybody and then beginning to, you could cut it any way you want. <laughs> you can cut it out and the odds that they all fit back together perfectly in the shape of the United States of America. <laughs> it really is a miracle. Luke 24 Verse 27 says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them that what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is the subject of every book. You can see the shadow, the foreshadowing of Jesus in the Old Testament as, and the New Testament as it, as it plays on each other. You can see God working, always looking forward to the Messiah. All the metaphors, all the analogies, all the stories, they're all pointing to Jesus. It's an amazing thing. Number five, it is confirmed by Jesus. Jesus trusted the Bible. Some might say, you know, I trust Jesus and all, but I'm not sure about that Bible thing. I, I, like, I, I believe Jesus was a real guy and he, his teachings, and I really believe that, but I'm not so sure about this whole thing. Look, Jesus proclaimed the Bible as a unique book to be trusted above all others. And, and, and logic would say, if you trust Jesus, who trusted the Bible, you can trust the Bible too. So you can look at it. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter five. He said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In John chapter 10, verse 35, here's what Jesus said. He said, scripture is always true. I want you to say that with me. Scripture is always true. Jesus said that. Jesus talked about the Bible as a real book, real God, real events. It wasn't just poetry or history. 
He used these ideas. He used, sometimes he used little lines from the scriptures to prove his point as he was telling the story or as he was sharing the message of life. Luke eleven thirty eight 38 says, he replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. He believed every word. If Jesus could believe every word, we need to believe every word. Look at what Jesus believed about the people and places in the Bible. He believed that they were real. Look at, he believed in the prophets, right? He talked about the prophets. He believed in Noah. He believed in Adam. He believed in Adam and Eve. He believed in Sodom and Gomorrah. He believed in Jonah. Now, those four, particularly the, 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 those four there, um, Noah, Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jonah, those are some of the most disputed stories in the Bible. People dispute those stories all the time. But Jesus is saying they weren't just good moral stories. Jesus believed in them and used them to communicate truth about himself. I always smile when people say, I kind of I smirk when people say, well, I kind of like some of it. Like, I like, the, I like the New Testament stuff, but I don't know about the Old Testament stuff. I used to know a marriage counselor. He was a pastor friend of mine, and he would get a couple in a room, and invariably, when you're you know, dealing with marriage counseling, one person or both don't want to do what the Bible tells them to do. So the pastor would be there, and he'd be saying, now, do you see this in the Bible, how, what this says? And I want you to make sure that you're doing this. And they would see the guy or the girl would say, no, I, I, I just can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And he'd pull open the drawer and pull up some scissors, and he would give them the Bible. He'd say, here, just cut that out then. You really don't need it. Just cut it. Just, just cut that page out. And to which they would always respond, well, I, I can't do that. <laughs> because somewhere deep inside of them, and it historically was some kind of reverence about this book. But really when it came, when push came to shove, they didn't want to obey it. They didn't want to really believe that it was trustworthy. If we're going to go through this 40 days in the word, we got to start here. That we believe that this book, maybe everything isn't in it isn't explained to us. Maybe we don't understand everything in it. Maybe there are questions about it, but if we'll have faith to believe that God wrote it and is speaking to us. Augustine, a man named Augustine said, if you believe in the Bible what you like and don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible you trust, but yourself. Jesus trusted the Bible. I can trust the Bible. Number six, it has survived all attacks. It has survived tons of attacks on it. This is indeed an unusual book. It is the most despised and derided, denied, disputed, dissected, debated, lots of other D words, outlawed. It's the most destroyed book ever. If you, if you have a Bible and you take it into certain countries, even today, you could go to jail or get killed. In North Korea right now, if a Bible's found on you, you will go to jail and the likelihood of you being killed is very high. The Middle East, some places in the Middle East, in Indonesia, the Bible is such a controversial book and it's such, a, uh, an important, it's such an important idea for you to understand that it has survived. It is still the best-selling, most-read book in all the world. It keeps surviving it survives all the attacks. It is, the, it is the, one of the greatest single sources, all right? One of the greatest single sources of art and poetry 
of architecture. I was listening to the radio. I can't remember. I tried to think of what the song was, but I remember thinking as I was driving around, I heard two phrases from the Bible in this pop song. It was a pop song. It was just some random pop song, and they were quoting the Bible. It's everywhere. It has survived. Matthew 24, verse 35 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Do you know who Voltaire was? Voltaire was a great French philosopher. He was an atheist. He said at his time, he said, within 100 years, the Bible will be forgotten. That's what he said. Within 100 years, the Bible will be forgotten. Actually, everybody's forgotten his quote. (laughs) Here's the cool part of the story. His home, right, his home became the headquarters for the French Bible Society for like 100 years. (laughs) It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Now it's a museum. It's incredible. First Peter, verse 1, 24 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands firm forever. It stands forever. Look, you, you and me have a decision to make. We have to come to this conclusion. We have to decide whether or not we're going to trust what God said. We're going to have to trust the Bible in a way that says God's laws are applicable to me. Because in the end of the day, you know, if you think about, think about something like gravity, you don't break God's laws. They break you. If you go against them, they break you down. If you surrender to them, then they help you figure out life. You can go to the tallest, sit, to the tallest building in the city of Austin. You can go up to the Austonian. You know that big, tall cylinder building? And you go up there, and you can get out there on the roof, and you can jump off. It's, I don't believe in gravity. And as you're going down, you can pass an open window, and somebody's in there and say, hey, how's it going? And you're like, pretty good so far. Actually, a lot of people are living their lives like that. I don't believe this stuff. I don't believe any of this stuff. All this stuff is junk, and they're just flying through the air. And there's going to be a moment when everything splats. There's going to be a moment when everything goes horribly wrong. They're going to meet God. There's a judgment day that is coming where they will meet him face to face. So here's, here's the good news. The good news, God keeps chasing them. God keeps chasing you. God's after you. He will not relent. He will not pull back. He keeps after you and after you until you would turn and say, okay, God, I believe. This is the truth that is facing us today. Why is it so important? Well, number seven, it has transforming power. Nothing can change lives like the Bible. And it's not just the words. I know a bunch of professors who know the Bible better than me and better than most of you in this room, and they have no understanding of a relationship with God. So it's not just knowing the information. There's something that happens when you read the Bible if you welcome God in, if you welcome the Spirit of God to reveal to you what's in this book. That's how it works. The, The words come alive on the page, not because the words on the page are alive, but because the Spirit of God is alive and in you. And when you read this Bible, if you're open to the Spirit of God, then He will show you. He will change you. He will transform you. I know addicts and drunks who have been transformed by reading this Bible, being open to God and his work in their lives. I know people who've been so full of selfishness and hatred, and as they read this Bible, something happened to them. Something was transformed. John 8, verse 31. 
It says, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know that last phrase, and the truth shall set you free? You know that that's written on buildings, educational institutions all over our nation? Some guy came up to me after the first service and said, that, those words are on the CIA building. The place where the most secrets are kept. And the truth shall set you free. I don't really get that. But most of us forget. We think it's just knowledge that's setting us free. It's not knowledge that sets you free. You forget the first part of the verse. Jesus saying, continue in my word. Become my disciple and the truth will set you free. Why is it so important? Because if it's not true, ladies and gentlemen, if this isn't true, we're in a heap of trouble because it is the Bible that tells us that our lives are not an accident. Science will never tell you that. They'll make you think you're just uh, an accident, just uh, out there floating around. The Bible's the thing that teaches us that there is an overarching purpose for our lives. The Bible teaches us that God made us to love us, to have a relationship with us. The Bible teaches that you and I can be forgiven of all of our failures, all of our past, all of our history. We don't have to let it destroy us. And the bondages and the chains that wrap itself around us, we can be free of that. There is reason for hope is what the Bible teaches. God can take anything in your life. Here's what the Bible actually teaches. God can take anything in your life and he can turn it around, however negative or bad it's been, any mistake you've made, and he can turn it around and make it good for your life. That's what the Bible teaches. Everybody wants to argue about the little niddly, niggly things in the Bible. Listen, the truth of the Bible can transform your life. The big question is, what are you gonna use for the authority of your life? The big question is, what will be the authority for your life? The word or the world? What will be the authority for your life? God or you? What will be the authority for your life? You have to answer this question. Look, last verse and we'll go. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. The will of God is found in the word of God. God's plan for you is pleasing and perfect. There is something for you right here. I want you to start off this 40 days believing this, opening up, opening up your mind, opening up your heart. I want you to sit in a living room with some other people and pour over it and begin to understand and unlock its truths. Look, I, the reason that these small groups are so important and daily devotions are so important because this isn't enough. I've told you some great ideas and we've read some good scripture, but the truth is you've got to unlock it for yourself. God wants to speak to you personally about it. Just put your stuff aside and let's pray 